Abba Yahweh, yet another day that you have blessed me with, give me breath to my lungs, take me into this day so that I can share be about our business, Father God, your business, that I share your truth, knowledge, and wisdom with anyone that would hear and listen to what is spoken and go to your word, your book of guidance, your instruction manual, and the roadmap. And what anyone else says does not matter to me, Father. Your valuation, your truth, your knowledge, your wisdom is the only thing that matters. And you have given this to us in your word, Father. Your word, which is the infallible truths of your promises, your existence, my faith. Father God, it is all you, Father. This platform that you allow me to have and use for your glory, Father God. Abba Yahweh, Aman. Thank you, Father. So, I'm going to share a couple things here. I had one of my mentors that I hadn't um, related to in a little while, and, and he was sharing something. And um, I'm going to dive into it, but first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to do something that I pretty frequently do and share something with a contemporary artist. This is a group. Oh. And the disclaimer that I'm going to share before I do this is so you all realize and know and it doesn't matter if you take it hard or not because I don't care, quite honestly. Um, I don't get sponsorship for doing this. I don't get paid for this. Oh, I'm getting paid. Um, not the way that we here in this plane of existence relate to that, but um, I have faith and trust that when I get to the gates... And my Lord meets me there and he says, come in, welcome home, my good and faithful son. That's my reward. That's my retirement. That's my full pay pension. Not like we have here where they promise so many things and then they retract what they promise or what they say and working on doing that even as we speak. But regardless, this is something that I want to share and I will often share because they do this. <coughs> Pardon me. Sorry about that. Um, this is a group called Need to Breathe. And they're not sharing anything. And I'm not, I'm just sharing it because I love these young artists that that do this contemporary Christian music. And, and some of it's really good. Some of it I'm not, eh, not so great with. But these... Scriptural messages that come straight from the word of God are so powerful and I love this. So this group here is uh, singing somewhat similar to uh, the song that both Lauren Daigle sang a, uh, a similar yet different and Tasha Layton was talking about um, and singing about, look what you've done. And at first, Satan is making that discrepancy toward, look what you've done. Look at what you've done. How can you possibly go to God? How can you possibly pray to God? How can you possibly go to worship? How can you possibly, possibly, possibly? 
And there are so many that absorb, they listen and absolutely absorb the white lies and those things from the devil, and then they do what the devil wants them to do. They don't go to church, they don't pray, they don't get in the scripture, they don't ask forgiveness, and then they self-degrade, belittle. Oh my goodness, we are so into that. But anyway, this song is very similar because it says, the white lies and desperation, hard times and conversations. What's he talking about? He's talking about, as you go back to the book of Psalms, someone um, thinks that um, I pointed out to you. Um, David was not demonically possessed as some people claim. Um, David had, it's a verbal sense of, of demons or devil torment. And as I've shared with you before, we have folks that walk around and they look like they're in a really sometimes heated discussion or a very lengthy talk with someone. But when you look, there's nobody there. But how do you know that they're not visualizing some of these devils or the minions that Satan sends or even demons that come to torment because that's what they do. They come to torment. They come to bother. They come to get you to believe that white noise interference that detracts you from focusing on God, being in his word, going to worship, going to praise, going to gather as we are called to be a gathering people. Remember, I believe I've shared this with you. It's in the book of Hebrews, actually, where we are called. And we are told we are a gathering people. And it's very important. This is in, um, that's the first part of Hebrew 10. I'm going to flip over there right quick, pardon me. Uh, This is my new Bible, and I'm trying to catch up with my notations and my transcribing things. Uh, I apologize for this. But in the book of Hebrews, we are called a gathering people. And notation is made by Paul. Um, that we are to do that and that we are not to be as some are and not come together and share time. But we are a called and gathering people. And we are called to fellowship, to be together. And we're meant to be that way. God has called us that way. God desires for us to be that way. But the devil doesn't want us to be that way. He doesn't want us to have interpersonal relationship. This is in um, Hebrews 10. Uh, 23 is where it begins. Let us hold fast prof the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. That doesn't mean we're going to poke or prod anybody, but provocation is when you get people to think, to, to study in their mind, and to, to mold these thoughts.
thoughts over and over again, which is what I want to do with this, with my, my mentors sharing what he did is for us to do that. But here again further, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be a gathering people. And also Peter shares with us in First uh, Peter that we are called as high priests and a peculiar people. Or in some translations, they call a special people. Well, you know what I found in some of these translations, and I shared this with you before, is that they want to change wording because they're afraid that it's going to offend somebody if you use the term special, uh, that they're going to think on, oh, special needs or something of that nature. Well, that's their problem. Don't soft soap, don't honey coat, and don't change it because you think that somebody's going to be offended. If they're offended, that's within themselves. I've shared this with you before, is that my ancestral heritage, um, we had a saying that you cannot be made embarrassed or you cannot be made to feel guilty. These things come from within you. And if you allow it, then you will be and you are. Very simple process. And that goes with much of what I'm sharing here. If you allow yourself to be offended by something, then you are going to be offended. And it does not matter. I used to see this where I worked. It wouldn't matter how kind, courteous, at all that you were to somebody and might be nothing to do with what they're harping about. And let me tell you, this happened pretty frequently and I have one of my previous coworkers that shares that and she's very, it gets her very distraught because they do that very thing still. And unfortunately, uh, it seemed to be a racially motivated issue. And the situation had nothing whatsoever to do with that. Nothing to do with that at all. But yet, that became the deciding factor of where they were going to want to try to cause a physical altercation and argue and fuss and become assaulted. And they weren't going to listen to anything that was said. And they were disrupting the ride for everyone else. Because they were offended by something that wasn't even relative Oh, my goodness, it's just, you know, we have to pray about this stuff, though, brothers and sisters. It requires prayer. It really, really does. Not to become agitated or try to get louder and louder. And that doesn't do any bit of good because I've seen this happen before. And I used to, I used to take part in that. Is that I would want my voice to be over their voice because my point of the argument was more important than their point of the argument. Why were you arguing? There wasn't any point to it at all. But that's the way we are in our general nature. Unless we have God in our center, unless we are centered with God, with our King Jesus, and if we accept that Lord Jesus is his only begotten Son and are saved by his washing of our sins, 
then we won't be like that. And we strive through the guidance of the Holy Spirit not to be like that. This is all relative to what I'm sharing, believe it or not. So back to this song by the group Need to Breathe. So sometimes my bad decisions define my false suspicions and no one should ever like me like you do. Now, this is the young man who's singing is talking to God. We always seem to come to that point. Bad decisions define my what? False suspicions. What is one of those false suspicions? That no one should love me the way that you do, God. No one should love me the way you love me. Why did you come and die on the cross for me? You shouldn't have done that. Well, who's telling you that? Well, Father, the, the devil. He comes and he tells me all these things that I did. And then further in the lyrics, it comes down to another saying, who am I? Who am I? Who am I to be loved by you? Who am I? Who am I? Who am I to be loved by you? Who am I to be loved by you, God? Last night, my confidence was shaken. All my old wounds, my past was saying, no one will love you. And no one should love me like you do. And yet, all that lie, lying, deceiving, false narrative that the devil is putting in there, And the Lord saw me from afar off. He looked and he saw me and he said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this because he needs me to do this. Brothers and sisters, yeah, I make it personal and I make it private and I make it mine, but that's okay because God doesn't mind it. That's what God wants all of us to do. Make it a personal thing with him. He wants a personal relationship with each and every one of us. So make it that way. Take scripture and make it personal. Make him personal. Have a personal relationship with God. Know God. Don't just know about him, what you've heard or what you've read about. And don't read the Bible as if it's a no novel or a novella or anything like that. Read it because it's his truth and despite what some commentators or what some believe and some others adhere to because these individuals that say it have their have a doctorate well what they do that's what i say if it's if they're speaking doubtful words and you're allowed to not agree don't just make an, an issue and, and provoke issues to be around but Provocative thought. Like it says in Hebrews, provoke one another. 
that doesn't mean that you poke them with a sharp stick and get an argument going or that you take a stick and you drive them in direction. That's not what that word means, provoke. You get them to think, to ponder, to question. And God does not mind us to question. If you don't know something or you find it puzzling, especially in the Bible, which some do, and I, I love the King James Version. I just do. I was raised on that. So I like King James, and I can understand it fairly well. Plus, of course, the language study that I'm trying to push myself into um, allows for a better understanding. But here's the thing. And I do that, I think, because it does have everything. It provokes me into thought. Just like it says in Hebrew, provoke one another. Get each other to thinking rather than going and being offended by this or that and the other thing, that we provoke one another to good works and love one another as we are supposed to do. That's exactly what we're supposed to do. So these things that this young singer was singing about. This is what we often do. We diminish who we are, what we are, and what we can do, and we tend to belittle that. And this is through pushing and prodding and lying from the devil and his minions that we get either outwardly, and sometimes we have demons that will come and push on us with that, but remember that Jesus gave us this. I give to you authority to step on the heads of serpents and on scorpions and to face down the power of the enemy himself and come to no harm. Jesus gave us that. We go back to Luke. Go back there and see when the 70 returned. Jesus gives us that power and authority. So we're not just... Don't ever get a conversation with the Lord going and questioning and start getting yourself going. Don't believe those lies of the devil. First of all, let's understand this really well because we're given this in the Bible. And that when you accept that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, and you declare that you want Him to be in your life. And, and we can do this right now. I've shared this with you before. Heavenly Father, holy is your name, and you are our Lord God, creator, and maker of all things. I accept that Jesus is your only begotten Son. I want Him in my life. I want Him to make changes, beginning with me, Father. Change me through Him, through his dying for me. I want to have faith in you. I want the Holy Spirit to guide me. From now on, Father, make that my life. That's what I want to do. In Jesus' name, amen. That's how easy it is. Doesn't take a long time. I made that a little bit longer even than it really is required. God doesn't require a certain length of anything. This is where a lot of people get hung up in things, that they think that God requires a certain amount of time that you need to do in order to be in prayer with him and to honor him and all this. Well, let me just say this about that hogwash. That's all made up stuff, just like the Pharisees used to do. And anyone that tries to tell you that it requires so much time to do that is full of baloney because it doesn't. The scriptures are very clear and God doesn't mind that you 
in the morning when people say, oh, I just don't have time. I can't make time. I can't do this. I can't do that. I got to get ready for work. I got to be at work at such a time. And if I'm going to take time, make time for God, then that means that I got to get up a whole hour earlier and be able to have time to have my coffee and get in the shower and yada, 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 yada. Well, that's a whole bunch of hooey too. Before you put your feet on the floor, I, I talk to God before I get out of bed. Sometimes I'm sitting on the edge of the bed. And my prayers to everyone come out and things that are going on and then his guidance for the day and the teaching of the Holy Spirit and coming to the Word and be able to study. And it doesn't take a long bit of time. And then I get up and I go get my coffee going. And, and you know I'm drinking my coffee because I've shared that with you before. And you, you can kind of judge with the pauses there when I'm taking a sip. And of course, when the devil comes and tries to get me all this raspiness and keep me going, I take a sip of my coffee to quell that. So all that definition of time is, is not required. And God does not require it. And he doesn't mind that if you take just a short pause, shoot out a bullet prayer, I've shared that with you before, and then you come back. And then you apply more time and spend more time. You have to get habitual about this, okay? And there's a lot of people that think that this is a requirement right away. No, if you're a new Christian and all this, it takes practice. Paul writes in, in most every one of his letters that we have to practice. And that book that was the first study uh, guide in my class, Practice the Presence of God. You have to practice his presence. It isn't something that just happens automatically. It does not. You have to practice it. Um, I shared with you that this is uh, this book comes from journalistic writings from a Carmelite monk, Brother Lawrence, they call him, from 15 into the 1600s. And then you have... Um, Brother Labach, back uh, I think a little earlier than Billy Graham, or maybe about the same time. <clears throat> but um, at any rate, they're both writing about this practicing the presence of God, and they didn't title the book "Be in His Presence," the presence of God. It says practicing. The Presence of God. That's the title of this book and a very good reason that it's titled this way. Because, brothers and sisters, it takes practice. It does. For everything that has become part of our lives and how we are and what we are, that is because we have habitually practiced it and it is something that we grew up doing and how we relate to these things now because we practice that. But if you practice the presence of God, it happens. It does indeed happen. So stop belittling, stop degrading, stop second guessing, and be in his presence. And it takes practice. Well, I bring that up because my mentor was sharing this with me, and, and this is this is very good. 
I, I love this actually. And we can find this, we find this in, uh, in John 12 actually. And when we go to John 12, and this is when um, it's talking about the time before the Passover. And this is a very important time in Jesus' life. It's a very important time in Jesus' life when uh, Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Very important. And what it's uh, talking about, actually we go into uh, John 14. Did I say 12? I'm sorry, I apologize. John 14. John 12. Um, in Matthew and Mark, it's 14. John 12. I apologize. I'm getting all over. Um, and the re the report that John gives in verse 12 is that, or in uh, chapter 12, is this was six days before the Passover. Now, some of you that know and some of you don't know, um, the Passover, the Feast of the Passover, the Festival of the Passover, is relative to what happened in um, Egypt. And when the death angel was going to come in, this was the final, this was the final, um, we'll call it the straw that broke the camel's back. Let's, we'll say that. This was just it. So the death angel came into Egypt and the nation of Israel was told to put the blood of a sacrificial lamb on their doorpost, their door, the door uh, mantle and doorpost, which is the framework around doors. And they were to put that blood on left post, right post, and on the mantle above. And this is very significant. You, you might see this, but I'm going to point it out to you anyway. So this is very important because that was a sacrificial lamb and it declared that they were following and they were in obedience of God. And that Jesus was in obedience of God when he came as a sacrificial lamb and died on the cross and he covered me in his blood. <coughs> Pardon me. So when the family came and also those, and, and the scripture talks about those who are strangers or sojourners or some of those that went with the nation when they left Egypt and they went with the nation and were given permission to do so. God said it was okay. So they went into the house where this blood covered the house. And when I say that, I say that in a biblical sense, in a scriptural sense, not in that they painted the whole house with blood. They didn't do that. They put blood on each doorpost and on the mantle. And the house was covered. Whoever was in that house was covered 
by the significance of that sacrificial lamb. And they were protected. They were covered by the promise of God. And who did not follow and who did not obey and who did not cover their house and their family, the firstborn of each was taken. And this was, as I say, the straw that broke the camel's back. But this is also very significant. Significant in that sacrifices are brought to the temple and the sacrifices are the firstborn of the herd, the flock, and they're brought without blemish. And this is what was done. And I'm bringing that up because this is very, very important. On that feast of Passover, Jesus was come to Jerusalem. Significance in that he was even there at the time. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, which was relatively close to Jerusalem, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. Lazarus was a, even before Jesus came and raised him from the dead, they were acquainted and they were friends. They had a, an earthly friendship type thing going. They knew one another, acquainted with one another, very well acquainted with one another. Some say, I haven't found it in the scripture yet, but some indicate and have a school of thought to this that Lazarus and Jesus were actually related earthly, like John the baptizer was his earthly cousin, and that he had brothers and sisters who were present at his uh, crucifixion. Um, sisters, which was declared when he went to Nazareth and tried to do miracles and things there, and he came because of his compassion for his mother, but he wasn't able to do so because everybody was, we know who you are, we know your family, we know your brothers and sisters, and we remember when you were not just teenager, blah, 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 blah. So this is a school of thought that some people believe that Lazarus was also related to Jesus some way or another. However, let's get back to the scripture. In verse two, there they made him a supper and Martha served as Martha, Martha does, remember when um, they were having a meal before and she was all worried and then came and tried to tell Jesus to make Mary come and help her. Well, that wasn't going to happen then. There they made a supper and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them and he sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard. So spikenard, for you that know, I'm going to clarify and educate a little bit to you here. We're going to take pause and um, uh, intermission. Spikenard is an oil made from a root of a plant that is uh, a variance, or it's in the family of Valerian and some say of ginseng. They're related. Botany is kind of an interesting thing, so is uh, animal biology. They're different but similar. 
but when you take the root, it's very fragrant. And spikenard was used specifically to anoint the body in preparation for burial for ceremonial purposes. And I mean, this was a, this was a common practice and something that was done regularly when they prepared for this. Then took Mary a pound, and we're going to continue in verse three, a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of ointment. Well, it's expensive because most of these fragrances and things that we talk about in the Bible that we find about um, when the three wise men came with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Frankincense and myrrh were uh, resonated tree saps that were saved for similar purposes, used in fragrant anointing of bodies when they were in preparation for burial. And let's, uh, we're going to sidestep a minute here for the three wise men. The scripture says, when they came to the house and saw the child, they knelt down and presented their gifts. Well, let's see, we have a lot of paintings and a lot of people have this idea that they came and everybody showed up at the, at the stable and worshiped Jesus while he was laying in the manger or some pictures have Mary holding the baby and they're kneeling down and everybody is there at the same time. Well, it didn't happen exactly that way. If you read and you follow the scriptures that the shepherds were very much the first there. They were, and this is significant and significant because the humble way that Jesus came into this world. He was born in a stable. They had to be mucked before uh, the fresh straw put down by Joseph, his earthly father, so that he and Mary could have a bed to sleep in. But the stable had to be cleaned out first and was done. And then the feeding trough, which was usually a folding uh, structure, was done and set up so that Jesus would have a crib and the angels came and evangelized. They came and evangelized the shepherds. They brought the news to the shepherds first. The shepherds were the first on the scene. Then wise men came and they had been traveling. Remember they were traveling by camel, mostly. And they probably had an entourage and they were traveling. And they stopped and they set up and studied their charts and all these things. It took some while for them to get from their kingdoms to get to where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And the scripture actually says, and when they came to the house, they saw the child. It didn't say baby. The scripture is specific in this. It didn't say, and they came and they knelt before the baby with Mary didn't say anything like that. It says they came, and when they saw the child, they knelt down and worshiped him. So my deduction is that Jesus was already starting to grow and that because of Mary and Joseph's financial situation and there because they were called to Bethlehem for the census and had to come and register, that they were probably there for a little while. And then when the wise men showed up, they had already had a 
residence that they were living in and Jesus was starting to grow, probably a toddler by this time. So a lot of these things, if you read through the scripture, you just pay attention to what you're reading. And if you have questions about it, ask God, ask the Holy Spirit, because he really doesn't mind if you ask questions. And when you become a Christian, especially a new Christian, you're not going to have all the answers. It just doesn't happen at the snap of a finger. He wants you to be in the word. He wants you to dig into the word. He wants you to seek his face and seek knowledge, seek wisdom. That is the collection of knowledge and put it together and know how to use it. Very simple. Put. But anyway, back to uh, John 12 and 4. Zen then saith one of his disciples, and they're very clear on this, and this is a very pointed um, issue here because Judas not only betrayed him, he lied and he was stealing the whole time. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared anything for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the bag and bare that what was put in therein. Put therein. That's what he cared about. That 300 pence that was going in the bag so that he could skim off the top and then, you know, have what was left. And, and he was carrying the money bag and left to do all these things. Because his true nature was, of course, being shown out. And it was discovered. And he thinks that he was being so crafty and sly. Well, Jesus not only knew about it, but there were others that were realizing what was happening. Because he always made a point to get to that bag, the purse, the money box, however they were carrying it when they went from point to point. And he was always making a point to get to it. And when somebody was going to... Um, he would step in and he, oh, no, I, I'm taking care of this. I have books. Well, and then, of course, they checked. And they found that it wasn't as he was saying. Then Jesus said, continuing verse 7, then Jesus said, let her alone against the day of my burying she kept this. She had that. She was saving it for a purpose. For the poor always ye have with you. But me, ye have not always. And then we find, and I, I highlight this in, in my Bible because this always seems to be something that comes about every single time that there's any of the, the priests or any of those quote-unquote religious leaders or elders from the church or the temple there, they always... Cons and the scripture are very... Um, I think they use a very polite word here in the translation. And it said, but the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. Interesting. I wouldn't be so gracious as to use consulted 
that seems very polite. Um, conspired. They conspired to also put Lazarus to death. Why would they do that? Because they were afraid. They were afraid that those speaking anything having to do with you. This is why Paul was hired by the Herodians, by the Jewry, and by the Romans. He was getting paid by three. And he was being paid by all three to hunt down Um, <laughs> pardon me. And he was paid to do where they were meeting. And remember, I shared with you, they didn't call them Christians at that time. They were, they were said to be in his way or in the way. That's the title of their organization, the way. Not that they were in anybody's way, except for the jury and those politicians and those who had political affirmation. They were in their way. Or so it was thought, but the truth being that they weren't in anyone's way and they would they weren't happy to being lorded over the way they were, but they weren't going to be in anyone's way. But anyway, um, uh, here's, okay. And now see, here's here we go into this again. So um, consulting is to seek advice or information, uh, referring to information. Um, they were making plans. So here's, here's one that the intellectual wizards decided to make obsolete, is that they were planning or contriving. Uh, that's a very good fit. That's a very good fit for that because that's what they were doing. They were contriving, they were putting this together. Um, but I, I just think that the, uh, I, I like the conspire better. And that they were working together toward the same result or goal that they intended, but they were agreeing together, especially secretly, to do something wrong, evil, or illegal. Now, these were the religious leaders of the time, and what they were plotting was definitely illegal. They still had, murder was still an offense in those days, and that's what they were actually planning to do. So they were going to get rid of Jesus and they were going to get Lazarus and then they were going to they were going to elaborate and make the contrivance of everything that he did. <clears throat> but back to scripture. We're going to jump up to Mark 14 actually and this is this is has to do with the singing and that song and has to do with what we think many times we, you know, in that group they were singing, who am I? 
who am I to be loved by you? Who am I that, that I get? And we often think and we put ourselves down and, and Satan loves for us to belittle ourselves or degrade ourselves. What can I possibly do? How can I possibly do anything? And who am I to be loved by you? First of all, if you accept that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, that he is our Lord and Savior, and that God is our Heavenly Father, ah, you just answered the question right there in making that statement. If you believe all those things, and you have faith in that, and you have faith in God, you are an heir and a joint heir with Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God Almighty, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he came down from the kingdom, the realm of heaven, left his crown and all his heavenly attributes there, and he came here to this plane of existence. And we are told in the scriptures that in accepting of that and choosing to do that, that we are heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ in the kingdom of heaven. That's who we are to be loved by him. And he did love us so much that he saw us from a great distance, And he came and died for me anyway. In Mark 14, and I have this highlighted in verse 8, actually, where the same thing is done. And in Matthew and Mark, they talk about that she... Uh, I'm going to go 14.4. And there were some that had indignation with themselves and said, why was that waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and had been given to the poor. And they started yammering against what she had done. Jesus, of course, told her, let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. Ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me, ye have not always. She hath done what she could. Listen to this. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to bury. She did what she could. God knows that there are things that we can't do. We're not able to do. But through his strength, we come and we do what we can. She has done what she could. Something she had been saving against the day that he would be buried. Now, here's something else that's very important. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she had done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. 2,000 years after the fact, we still talk about Mary. She is part of the gospel story. She anointed God before he was buried. And incidentally, um, this is something that my mentor pointed out, and, I, and quite honestly, I didn't actually think of it readily. But, you know, this was a customary thing that, the folks in those days did. They anointed those that were going to be buried, those who were killed. But Jesus, because of the circumstances, didn't have that. And they were getting ready to bury him pretty quickly because there were all sorts of violations of Jewish law. The sun was already setting and the, and the evening was coming. 
They had to get Jesus off the cross, down in and into a tomb. And you may or may not know this or remember this if you've read it, but Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy, wealthy, connected Jewish man. And he had government ties and connections. He had sort of an inroad with them because of his wealth. And the Roman magistrate and those who were in any power allowed this. Jesus came, uh, Joseph came for Jesus and told Pilate, he says, I want his body. Give me his body. The Jews weren't going to have that. They were just going to take Jesus and throw him in a pit out in the edge of town and throw some dirt over him so that they would be legal and all would be good. So Joseph came and said, I want his body. Pilate afforded him that, gave it to him, and Jesus was taken to a tomb that was cut out of the stone for Joseph of Arimathea. And this is kind of, I'm going to get into some things that I had, had taken a look at. And I'm going to try to do this as briefly as I can. Now, the stone that was put across the face of that tomb was pretty close to a ton. And Joseph, having the monetary ability he did, um, had some things that were done so that the stone would be placed in front of the tomb and then it would be um, kind of wedged there so that it wouldn't roll and it was all everything was done so that the stone could be set and once it was set in front of the tomb it, it, it couldn't be moved and it was placed above sort of the the way um the easement was only going to be that it was going to be able to be moved in front of the tomb and then it was going to be locked in place so all this hoo-ha nonsense that the Pharisees were busy plotting that, that the disciples came and rolled the stone away. First of all, there were 12 of them and you have to count and subtract as you will. You had Mary, 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 Rama, and Joanna who were there. So you have to subtract four and they were counted in as the disciples. They were counted with the disciples, but you have to subtract four from that body. And then you had the 12 guys, 12 men, um, the women prepared the food and all that other stuff. And they were with them all the time. And you remember here, it's very important also that the women were the first ones to the tomb, not the men, the women. Which in that day and age, in that culture, their women were discounted pretty well regularly and even in the transcriptions and they talk about the feeding of the 5,000 remember I share this with you that you have to include the wives now you're talking about 10,000 and you have to include the children and in that cultural day and age that it was very common for the families to have at least four children so now you have to do some more multiplication so we're going to do this very conservatively and we're going to say in a, that each family that was there <coughs> pardon me had Two children each. So now you have to do some more multiplication. So now you have 10,000. And now you have another five. So now you have 15. And now you have 20. So the real number, actually, is closer to 20,000 or even more. If they had four children with each family, you have more. So you're going to talk about a stadium full of people that Jesus felt fed with 
fish and bread. And he blessed it and broke it and multiplied that out so that the disciples were able to fill the tummies of all those people sitting, waiting, and listening to Jesus and collected more baskets back that could feed them as well, which was, I think, the significance of the 12. The scriptures kind of hint to that, but then the disciples didn't even pay attention. They didn't pay attention to the fact that Jesus was paying attention to them, even in everything that he was doing. Jesus was the original multitasker. He provided food for those that came to hear the word because they were getting hungry. But he also was considering his disciples who were with him who were probably also hungry. And they collected 12 more baskets of food so that they would have food to eat. So if you have an issue with multitasking, think about that. Jesus was not only preaching, he fed them, and he had them collect so that they would be able to eat later. They didn't think about it, but he did. Already had it done. So brothers and sisters, I share these things with you to provoke you. I am provoking you to get into the word of God, to seek his truth, his knowledge, and his wisdom. And as I've already shared with you, there are certain, we'll call them commentators, that make a declaration that this is not so much a way, but here's the facts as I see it. Maybe it's an opinion, but I don't know. I don't, I don't, it's not just an opinion. No, it's beyond an opinion because the Holy Spirit gives me this. This Bible is our guidebook. It is our roadmap. And it is indeed an instruction manual. But you have to go back. You have to read it. You have to study it. You have to pay attention to it. And you have to be in the Word. You have to be spending time. You have to practice the presence of God in your life. You have to talk to Him. And if you have questions, ask. God does not mind if you ask him questions. He doesn't mind. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. It guides us and teaches us. And I believe I shared this with you before. When I was younger, I had certain teachers, and they would speak in that still small voice. You could hardly hear what they were saying. And they did that intentionally so that you would ask questions or they wanted to make sure that you were paying attention. That you were leaning in to listen to the lesson. And sometimes, as it was with Elijah on the mountain, we must lean in and listen because... God does not always speak in that thundering voice, the voice of many waters or of many thunderings. Doesn't happen that way. Brothers and sisters, you are in my prayers on my going out and my coming in. Be blessed.